Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're with us this week. Glad you're ready to study the Bible and hope that we get to one of your questions today. What we do is take questions from our viewers. Uh, you can use that phone number on the screen or you can use that website and log on and send us a question uh, by email if you want and we'll get you an answer back pretty quickly. If you want to give us your name and address, we'll get you an answer written in the mail as quickly as we can. Uh, if you just want to give us a question, we'll put it in the stack of questions and get to it as quickly as we can on Know Your Bible. But uh, we want to answer your question because we want you to know your Bible a little bit better. And we found out that's a good way to do it is just let you ask questions and we'll try to find out what the Bible has to say about it. We get some real detailed, uh, specific verse questions. What's this verse mean? And we get a lot of life questions, current events and things that are happening in the world. People wonder, what's the Bible principle on that? What would God think about that? We'll try to find you an answer. So give us a call or log on and let us know what you want us to talk about on Know Your Bible. Toby Levering's here and ready to answer some questions. Hi, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're here and studied up and ready to go. We've all got a, uh, each got a few studied up and ready to try to answer on the program. So we're going to get to them, but we always start with one for our viewers. Today we're talking about Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, what was his occupation uh, before he went into the Apostle business uh, that Jesus called him from? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. See if you know what Peter's job was. All right, Toby, I think you drew the first one, so you first, get to kick things off. Okay. Uh, first question is about the mercy of God. If, if God wiped out all people in the flood, how can he be a merciful God? Uh, actually, this question is kind of timely because I was reading the story of Noah and the flood to my daughter. Uh, she's about six years old, and, and uh, as we were reading along, she said, Dad, everybody died. All the animals and, and all the people and all the children, and uh, that's insightful for a six-year-old, understanding that, yeah, a flood was a, a, a terrible thing, and it was also a wonderful thing. And you say, how can that be? Well, uh, the, the flood was a whole lot of God's justice. And it was also a, an incredible act of mercy. And you say, well, where's the mercy of God? Okay, well, to understand this and to see both the justice and mercy of God, you'll need to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. This won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read a few verses from Genesis 6, which is where this account is found. And starting in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, 
What we see in that moment is God's justice. Uh, he didn't make the wrong call there when it says the thoughts of man were, was only evil all the time. I have no doubt there was very little exaggeration that the world was a dark place and became so very quickly because of sin. And so God dealt with sin as he always deals with sin, justly. But uh, the story doesn't end there. Uh, in the last part of verse 8 it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that was God's act of mercy. And because Noah found favor, he was granted mercy. He and his wife and his sons and their wives were granted mercy. And because uh, God found favor with them, he gave them a plan of escape that they could survive and not only survive but allow all life to continue as well in the plan that we know as Noah and the ark. Um, so that was God's act of both justice and mercy. And uh, the mercy part doesn't seem fair, I guess, because only Noah got it. But the truth is, uh, I have no doubt that God did exactly the right thing, as He always does. The answer is God's not just a merciful God. He's, an, he's a God of both justice and mercy. Here's what it, we read in the New Testament from Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and following. God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The mercy was extended toward Noah and toward his family, and of course eventually to all of us who are alive. Um, that flood washed away in God's perfect justice all of the evil of mankind and gave us all a second chance. And we're reminded of that second chance every time we see the rainbow. Alrighty. All right, we got a current event question here. Uh, a viewer wants to know, what does the Bible say about Muslims? Should we let them in or keep them out? All right, let me answer the first part. First, what's the Bible say about Muslims? Nothing. Uh, because Muhammad didn't come up with Islam until six or seven hundred years after Christ died. Uh, the New Testament doesn't address it at all uh, as a specific religion. Uh, yeah, in general, talks about false religions and Christianity and all that. So, in a sense, it talks about it, but no, doesn't mention Muslims. So, that's the first part of the question. Second part of the question is should we let them in or keep them out? Uh, you may have noticed we don't do much politics on this program, uh, and discussing immigration policy is probably about as politically as you can get today, uh, so we're probably not going to discuss immigration policy about who we let in or who we keep out. Uh, I will give you some principles from the Bible, because I know people are discussing this. I know I see arguments uh, about immigration policy that, well, it's the Christian thing to do, uh, and we ought to welcome everybody, and we ought to help refugees, and uh, lots of arguments, both pro and con, from religious people. So I know people are discussing it. Let me give you some principles. Uh, number one, personally, as Christians, uh, we're supposed to be kind to everyone. Uh, we're supposed to help people. And let me give you a verse on that, Galatians 6.10. Let's look at that together. Uh, Paul said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So even in that, he draws a distinction. There's a distinction. Our first priority is doing good to the household of faith. Uh, but he says, as we have an opportunity, let's do good to everyone. So, yes, we ought to be kind. We ought to treat people well. 
uh, we ought to welcome refugees, we ought to do all that as individual Christians. Now, second principle I want to give you is the USA is not Israel. Uh, this is not a theocracy. We can't go to the Old Testament and say, okay, this is the way the USA ought to behave. Uh, I mean, we certainly don't do that on anything else, uh, but people that have a open borders kind of policy uh, do go to the Old Testament and say, well, it says there, treat foreigners like one of your own and welcome them and all of that. Uh, the USA is not a theocracy. We're not like ancient Israel. And our government is supposed to protect us. Uh, they don't operate by... Old Testament principles or Christian principles particularly, uh, they need to do what's right to protect us. So uh, that's a principle that you might consider in your argument. And uh, the last thing I'll say is I've seen a lot of Christian bloggers and writers and things that say, well, this is the, the godly thing to do. Uh, the Israelites welcomed foreigners and of all kinds and all of that. Well, if you read uh, like Leviticus 19 and 20, go through those couple of chapters, it does say to welcome foreigners and it does say to treat them like one of your own and all that. But a condition of that is they need to worship Jehovah. Uh, they need to uh, conform to the religious principles of Israel. In fact, it goes so far as to say if some of these foreigners start worshiping their old gods, start sacrificing their children to Moloch and things like that, you're supposed to stone them. Okay? So a lot of people leave that reasoning out that yes, foreigners were welcomed, but they had to adapt to the culture of Israel. Uh, they had to behave like the Israelites behaved and follow the cultural principles of Jehovah God. So some people leave that out, and I think that's something that we ought to consider as we think about this difficult uh, immigration policy thing that we're debating right now. So uh, just remember, political is sometimes different than Christian biblical principles. So hope that answers the question and gave you some principles you can think about uh, in this question about immigration. All right, Toby, I got through that one without too much trouble. I okay. Think. Well, we cover the gamut of topics on this program yep. from immigration policy to communion frequency. Uh, viewer wants to know, does the Bible say to partake of communion every Sunday? Well, if you, if you look at communion and how Jesus established it, um, and what he was, you know, they were partaking of the Passover feast. And when he did that, he said in Luke 22, verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it finds fulfillment, I eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus understood that communion was to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be a part of the church, and how they, a part of their fellowship together. Now, the question naturally then becomes, well, okay, when and how often? <clears throat> uh, here's what we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, Paul here is writing to, to the Corinthians. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when you look at the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians, it's apparent that a lot of the struggles they had at Corinth stemmed from the fact that they were treating this just like any other meal. But this was to be a special observation. It was to be a special time to, to remember what the Lord, who He was, what He promised, what He did, and and to keep that very reverent. And so it was, it was a, a part of one of the many problems that they had at Corinth. So Paul's instructing them. Obviously, we can understand from that that this was a part of their regular meetings and Paul, because Paul's addressing, hey, you're doing this incorrectly. You need to pay attention to how you do this and examine yourself as you do it. So in Churches of Christ, we do this every first day of the week uh, because we believe that's how the early church did it. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42. It says uh, they, they came together for uh, the breaking of bread and for fellowship. And we understand that term of the breaking of bread referred to the Lord's Supper. And they, they probably did it a little differently than we do, but um, it was something that they did and they observed. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 is the final scripture, which won't be on the screen, but Paul says, On the first day of the week, we were when we were gathered together to break bread. So it was a part of the early church. It was something that they did regularly. And from what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 20 and Acts 2, uh, it was a part of every time they met on the first day of the week. Okay. You may have mentioned it, and I wasn't paying attention, but history shows us that, too. Uh, some records we have from people writing about Christians and Christian practice, uh, that's what they do. Every Sunday morning, they gather early and observe this this feast. So, uh, historically, that's what they did. All Didn't right. mention it, but good point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let me take this moment and talk to you about a way to study the Bible. Uh, we try to answer a few questions every week and may help you know your Bible a little bit better, but we've got some free materials that we'll send you that uh, can really let you study the Bible in your own home. And there's a number of different courses that we have. Uh, we start with this first one because it's just such a good overview of the Bible. Uh, there's eight lessons in the series and uh, cover different topics in the Bible starts out real basic. The first two you see on the screen right now are the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, some folks don't know there's a difference between those and what the difference is. That's where this course starts, is understand the two big parts of your Bible and how to dis divide between them and then go on to some other things. So a uh, good general overview is not a church a denominational creed or anything like that. It's just an open Bible study. You sit down with the lesson, you read what it tells you to read, uh, look up the scriptures that it tells you to. It's got a few questions on the back so you can uh, kind of test yourself, see if you were paying attention, and then you send it back to us, and we pay the postage on that, by the way. Uh, you send it back, and we'll score it for you. That gives you a little accountability, uh, and then we'll send you the next lesson. You can keep studying know your Bible, study materials for a long time. Good way to know your Bible. So give us a call or log on and let us get that started for you. Um, tough question here. A viewer says, my children were raised in church, uh, but they've turned away from their faith and they deny Christ. Uh, what can I do and what shouldn't I do? Well, I appreciate this viewer's uh, 
seeking help and uh, what can I do? And there's, there's probably some things I should uh, that I might do that wouldn't help. Tell me what those are. So we appreciate that. Uh, let me say first of all that children have free will. Uh, sometimes parents take a little too much credit when kids turn out good and a little too much blame when kids turn out bad. Uh, kids have free will. Uh, Adam, and Eve were, Adam and Eve were given free will and chose to do wrong. Uh, so sometimes our kids do too, and it breaks our heart. It's uh, parents that have done everything they can, the best they can. Uh, sometimes kids still choose to do wrong. So uh, it is a heartbreaking thing, but if you're asked, what can I do? What shouldn't I do? So let me try to give you a few principles. Uh, first of all, you can pray. And Paul was in a situation where that's basically all he could do for his family, his Jewish family, who wouldn't accept Christ. They denied Christ. And he wrote in uh, Romans 10 about that. Let's read this. Romans 10, verse 1. Uh, he said how much his heart broke because they wouldn't accept Christ. And he said, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so that's what he did about his family. He just prayed that somehow they could be saved. Uh, you can also live a good example before them. Let them see what Christ means in your life and what, uh, how your church helps you and uh, those kind of things. Live that kind of a good example. Um, you can love them. Uh, they're still your children. Uh, you need to, to let them know that you love them unconditionally and maybe they'll see in your actions what Christ has done for you. Uh, so you can do those things. Uh, I think the question about what shouldn't you do, uh, how I would answer that is try not to alienate them. Uh, try not to harass them every time you see them. Don't quote them scriptures and <laughs> try to uh, force them to their senses. Uh, that could end the relationship. And you want to maintain that relationship, if at all possible, uh, with your children. Now, part of the problem is when you say they have turned away from their faith and they deny Christ, I don't know the degree that is. Uh, you know, if they're just not attending church is one thing. If they're, you know, joined a satanic cult or something, that's something else. So I don't know what where they are on that spectrum of denying Christ. and That would determine your behavior a lot. But in general, try to maintain uh, that family relationship and not, not alienate them. Uh, I will add this, if their lifestyle, when you say deny Christ, if their lifestyle is anti-Christian, if it's just re totally rebellious and, and uh, totally worldly, uh, one thing I'd say you shouldn't do is support them. Uh, don't help them in that. And a lot of kids that turn away from what they've been taught still come back for some financial help every once in a while. Uh, resist doing that. Don't support an ungodly lifestyle. But let me read you one verse to close here, Second Timothy 2. Uh, pretty good advice, I think, for you. It says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Read that one. Uh, that kind of gives you some advice. Uh, don't be quarrelsome and don't alienate them. Correct them with gentleness if they ask something. Uh, and God may perhaps grant them to come to their senses. So I think that's good advice. Galatians chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where that is for you. All right, Toby, what do you got? Yes, uh, the age-old question. <laughs> uh, why did people live so long in the Old Testament? And uh, the answer to that is because God decided uh, that that would be the limit. Now, there's some question as to how that happened and why. You read it, the early genealogical accounts in Genesis, and the people lived a long time, uh, several hundred years. Uh, Noah lived to be aged 950. Genesis 5.27 records that Methuselah uh, lived to age 969, which is the longest uh, uh, recorded human lifespan in the Bible. And uh, that was a pretty long time, close to a millennia there. And so uh, the question is, why is that so different? I mean, we're the same human beings, have the same bodies in theory. No, I think a lot's changed since uh, the early days of the planet and uh, the early days for us. Uh, lots of theories you can look up about uh, the pre-flood environment and how that may have, you know, this would have been a more ideal environment if we had a different uh, atmosphere, which we probably do, then uh, then we they had it now then than we do now. Uh, their diet was different for a time. God uh, changed the diet where they could uh, uh, eat meat and animals, and that may have had an effect. Uh, I think genetics were a lot different when God created them. They were absolutely perfect, and over time, mutations and, and sickness and illness and all of that created problems. So, uh, But the short answer to it is really because that's what God said the limit was going to be. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, he said this, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And Steve and I are probably both now thinking of a dear sister who was uh, just passed away not too long ago at Northside and went to 102 years. So uh, she uh, she had a good long life. and, and uh, yep, Not many make it that far. Yep. And I don't know if anybody's made 120 in a while. Yeah, so. it's not that I <laughs> it know. It seems anyway. to be the limit. <laughs> All right, interesting question here. I like this one. A viewer says, the Bible talks about contentious women, but does it address contentious men? Now, sometimes we try to guess whether a man or a woman sent a question in. I'm <laughs> guessing. <laughs> I'm guessing that this was from one of our lady viewers. Uh, and what she's referring to about contentious women, uh, there's some other words for it, but let's look at one of them in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 9. Uh, the, the writer of Proverbs says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, and some translations say contentious, some translations say nagging wife. So uh, our viewers reading along here and sees, and there's more proverbs like that, uh, that say, you know, it's better to live in the attic than it is to live in the house with a nagging wife. And our viewer says, well, what's all this about nagging women? How about contentious and nagging men? Are there any of those addressed in the Bible? Uh, well, let me, let me try to explain it this way. Uh, first of all, Proverbs is written from a father to a son. Okay, so you get the context there. That's what is, this is about. He's not addressing all of life. He's telling his son 
some generalities about life. And so he tells him, you know, be careful about who you marry. Now, my guess is that mothers sat their daughters down and had this same talk uh, and told them, be careful who you marry. Uh, but in the context, the, the writer of Proverbs, in fact, to read the first chapter, that's how it started. Uh, listen to your father, O son. And he gives him some advice that a son needs as he goes through life. Now, certainly the principles apply to most of us, and uh, this one would certainly apply to women as well as men. But it's a father speaking to his son is what's happening here. Now, the New Testament does address... Uh, being quarrelsome, being contentious, all of that. And it says Christians, male or female, shouldn't be that way. It talks to husbands and wives and tells about how they ought to treat each other, and it says they shouldn't be that way. So, yes, the Bible does address it. It tells Christians they shouldn't be nagging or contentious or quarrelsome or any of those words that you want to use. Uh, but going through the Proverbs, you'll find it all addressed to the males. It's a father talking to his son. So, so good question. No, men should not be contentious or quarrelsome or nagging. I don't think many of them are, but <laughs> they shouldn't be. <laughs> All right, let me take this moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. The Churches of Christ keep us on the air, and we like to mention some each week. Uh, today, let me talk about the one in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's our headquarters up in South Dakota. Uh, we broadcast from there and covers the a lot of South Dakota and over into Minnesota a little bit, I think, down into Iowa. And the Southeastern Church there on Southeastern Avenue uh, helps keep that on the air for you. They're the ones that got it started and uh, became our partners in it, and we appreciate them and their support. Great bunch of folks there. Drop in and visit them. Uh, maybe you know somebody that attends there. Uh, tell them, hey, I saw you on Know Your Bible the other day, and I like that program and watch that program. Let them know that you appreciate their, their work in that area. So we thank them. Uh, whatever market you're in, there's probably a Church of Christ near you. If you're looking for a church home, uh, drop in, visit them sometime. You'd be warmly welcomed in a Church of Christ. All right, Toby, yeah. what's up? Uh, if you a viewer would like to know, where do I find where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Okay, well, that scripture is found uh, in Matthew chapter 16. And we'll go ahead and read it and put it on the screen. It's uh, verses 13 through 16. Give a little context. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's a, that's a great example. And uh, honestly, kind of same thing happens today. Lots of people say different things about Jesus. Some that he was a good man. Some that he was a moral teacher. Some that he was just a, a, a figment of uh, history. Um, but what really matters is uh, what we understand who Jesus is and who do you say that Jesus is. So hope you'll reply like Peter did. Okay, very good. We're out of time for questions, but uh, we got one trivia question to answer today. Uh, Peter, what was his occupation before he went into the apostle business? He was a fisherman, and probably a lot of our viewers figured that one out. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen <laughs> and uh, became apostles. So 
we're out of time, but we're glad you've been with us today. We're going to come back next week and try to answer some more questions best we can. Until then, we hope that you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.